I do like it though when I say something and you say stop, save it. <laughs> save it. We're not allowed to have a conversation as friends anymore. It's only <laughs> when recorded. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Hunter Morke. We're a podcast that talks about psychology, research, therapy, anything that tickles our fancy. Today we're going to be focusing on the dark tetrad. So a very, very long time ago, about 40 episodes ago, we spoke about the dark triad, which is psychopathy, Machiavellianism and narcissism. And so then tonight we wanted to have a look at the tetrad, which adds in sadism into the mix. So we're going to alternate backwards and forwards, a bunch of different articles but before we get into that as always we'd like to thank you for listening and if you like what you're hearing please rate us on itunes five star rating helps us get higher up in the charts so people find us you can also contact us send us ideas feedback anything like that so we're on twitter two shrinks pod or you can email us two shrinks pod at gmail.com or visit our website shrinkspod.com. Are we ready to get started? Yeah. Well, we should also mention that if you didn't see it in our podcast feed, uh, we were recently on a podcast called School of Movies and we were talking about the Pixar movie Inside Out. We were asked to guest on that and it was really lots of fun Mm. talking all about movies and emotion and understanding how emotions process and all that kind of stuff. So uh, if you haven't checked that out, it's really, really great and we had lots and lots of fun. We did. So where are we going to start? So I'm going to talk about the dark triad and a paper that talks about the dark triad and adding in sadism and how they've kind of got to that idea of adding a fourth element into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I'll be talking about short and long-term relationships and the role of the dark tetrad in that. And then I'm going to finish up talking about the dark tetrad and callous reactions to mourner grief. Mm-hmm. And I'm finishing off with online trolls. And the dark tetrad. So the first article that we're going to talk about is an article titled Subclinical Sadism and the Dark Triad, Should There Be a Dark Tetrad? This is by Laura Johnson and colleagues, and they're from the University of Western Ontario in Canada, and it was in the Journal of Individual Differences in 2019. So I chose this article because it's probably a good intro into the topic, if you didn't listen to Pod 5, if you haven't been hanging around since then. Mm So the name of the dark triad was given to socially malevolent traits known as Machiavellianism, narcissism and psychopathy. And so I'm, I'm just going to run through what those three things are mm-hmm. just as a basis for understanding where we're going and then we'll talk about sadism. So Machiavellianism describes an exploitive interpersonal style, sort of a cynical view of humans and with this sort of like an ends justify the means attitude. Narcissism, which we've talked about a lot and is sort of very topical nowadays, is characterized by feelings of entitlement, superiority and and self-enhancing behaviors. Whereas psychopathy is defined by shallow affect, impulsivity, risk-taking and physical aggression. Mm -hmm. So the the latter two, we talked a lot in the personality disorders series. Machiavellianism is sort of less known, Mm. but people talk about people being quite Machiavellian if they're 
plotting, mm. kind of scheming. You think about sort of politicians and things yeah. like that. So individuals high in the dark triad traits are generally callous, they're emotionally detached and they lack empathy for individuals that they exploit. So common aspects between these traits are sort of a willingness to engage in emotional manipulation. And sort of this is like core of callous manipulation low honesty, humility, or like low agreeableness, mm. right? So this is kind of, you kind of get this like idea of like why it's called a dark cluster of things. And so they, if you go back and listen to pod five, they found that rather than just looking at the, like say narcissism and how it predicts behavior or psychopathy and how it predicts behavior or Machiavellianism and how it predicts a particular behavior, they found that if you put all of these personality traits into analysis, you got a better predicting of behaviour. Mm. From a statistic- they sort of hang together. They, they hang together, so it's better to actually assess them all together. So sadism sort of makes sense to be linked to the dark triad. So sadism is this dispositional tendency to engage in cruel, demeaning or antagonistic behaviours for pleasure or subjugation, to take pleasure in causing or witnessing acts of cruelty, Essentially, like the suffering of others is mm. rewarding. So you can sort of see how it's similar, but sort of different, or mm. it sounds like it's different in a subtle way. With all of with all of these things, like with personality, it exists on a continuum. Sort of, you know, from sort of subclinical, so it's like like everyday levels of it, mm. to being a full blown sadist, essentially. Yeah. And what they found is that. Sadism predicts delinquent and antisocial behaviours in the adolescent boys. Mm-hmm. I always love the word delinquent. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never really quite sure I know what it means, but I kind of know what it means. Yeah. Anyway, but being proposed that the dark triad should be expanded to the dark tetrad. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was thinking about now with sadism. <laughs> it's, it's the, uh, the, Marketing. Yeah. yeah. So these authors talk about that there's three subgroups of sadism. There's verbal sadism, so humiliating and mocking others. There's physical sadism, so there's desire for subjugating someone or enjoying hurting others. Mm. And vicarious sadism, so pleasure obtained through observing or fantasizing about violence, mm. right? And so you can sort of see how that might sort of play out in terms of computer games yeah. or kind of how someone might treat someone in the workplace or whatever, right? So all four share this this embodiment of a cold, callous, dishonest character, but there's subtle differences in how these four relate to other aspects. So, for example, these authors talk about aggression. So they're all related to aggression, but mm. the reasons for them being related to aggression are different, right? Mm. So sadists engage in violence for sheer enjoyment, yeah. whereas someone who's psychopathic is aggressive for an instrumental purpose. Mm. So, so they'll be aggressive for a reason, for a means like to you know, rob a bank or, yeah. or would be an extreme example, but mm. that kind of thing. And narcissists will be aggressive in reaction to their ego being threatened, yeah. lashing out, yeah. right, that kind of thing. And an individual high in Machiavellianism is more cautious and will be aggressive if it benefits them directly. Mm. That kind of makes sense. So, yeah, they're all it's all related, yeah. but there's the subtlety in why it's related. Mm. Conceptually, they think that sadism is most close to psychopathy as both are related to engaging in unprovoked aggression, mm. if that makes sense. What they wanted to do in this paper was to evaluate whether subclinical sadism belongs in the dark tetrad mm-hmm. and to investigate how subclinical sadism correlates with relevant personality constructs like extroversion, agreeableness, that kind of stuff. I'm just trying to think, like, is there a popular, a popular example of a sadist? I'm just trying to think of like a pop culture 
I mean, aside from the Marquis de Sade, but... Mm. I'm thinking of sort of criminals in movies or TV. Yeah. So I'm thinking even like Hannibal or yeah. stuff like that, where there's enjoyment out of other people's suffering. There's yeah. kind of that playing with people. There was a movie called Copycat. Was, uh, I think yeah. Holly Hunter might have been in it and I think Harry Connick Jr. in a <laughs> in a bit part. Yeah. And that was the 90s and there was a, that was a movie about serial killers and... And yeah, someone I don't copycatting like, serial killers. Yeah. Yeah, I don't feel like I've seen any like a sadistic character that purely that, not other things as well. Yeah. But maybe that gets at the fact that these yeah. things all kind of overlap. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in interrelate. <coughs> so what they wanted to do was to evaluate whether it makes sense mm-hmm. statistically speaking whether you could include sadism into Dark Tetrab. 615 undergrads, 76% female, average age about 18. They were given the short dark triad, mm-hmm. so measures of Machiavellianism, psychopathy and narcissism. And they were given the CAST, which is a comprehensive assessment of sadistic tendencies. Mm-hmm. So that has verbal, physical and vicarious sadism. And they're also given a personality inventory. And so they wanted to show that it... Firstly, that sadism was separate from the, the triad and then they also wanted to look at how it related to personality. So they thought that those high in sadism would be low on agreeableness, low on honesty and humility and emotionally, emotionality and as they would like to dominate and hurt others, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's what they found with negative correlations between sadism and these factors. So if you're low agreeableness, to put it into English... Like you're vindictive, you're critical, argumentative, hostile. Low humility is associated with manipulative, greedy, egotistical and unfair behaviour. Mm. And low emotionality sort of reflects really essentially that, just like toughness, lack of anxiety. Coldness. Yeah, lack, yeah. Of, lack of empathy, just kind of they, they, they wouldn't react that much. Yeah. They probably, like someone with low emotionality would probably be a good soldier. Right? Which... It's interesting because it cropped up in one of the articles that I looked at, but it's not something that I've got included in my notes. There's something about that, like that kind of distinguishing thing between psychopathy and sadists with empathy. It's an interesting one in terms of, you know, psychopaths have trouble perceiving other people's emotions. Yeah, where sadists Whereas sadists would... can, but they don't care. Yeah. So it's because they need to be able to see it to be able to enjoy the other people's pain. Yeah. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas when we've talked about psychopathy before. Yeah. There can be diff- difficulty actually. They don't sort of perceive it. Perceiving it. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, the, you know, what we talked about in the last pod about psychopaths not sort of recognising someone's anger mm. and, and as a result they would invade someone's personal space. Yeah. That kind of thing. That, yeah. Exactly. And as they thought, they found that sadism was positively correlated with dark triad traits, suggesting that they all share common elements. So basically that there was, you know, if you were high in narcissism, you'd also be high in sadism and same for Machiavellianism and psychopathy. Mm. Like they thought it was most closely related to psychopathy, but not high enough that you would think that they were the same thing, okay. right? So the correlations was sort of 0. So they don't 5. overlap completely. Yeah, so the correlations were 0.5 to 0.63 for that. So yeah. that kind of makes sense. They then took it a step further and to ensure that sadism was separate from the dark triad. And so they did a factor analysis of the dark triad scales and the sadism scale, mm-hmm. So, which had three subscales. So essentially that if it was separate, you would expect six factors to come out of that. Mm-hmm. And that's what they found. They got a six-factor solution. Okay. So of narcissism, Machiavellianism, 
psychopathy and then verbal, physical and vicarious sadism. All separate. All separated Constructs, out. yeah. Yeah. And basically it means that sadism scales are different from psychopathy. Mm-hmm. So that it's, yes, there's overlap or yes, there's, there's similarity, but they're not the same thing. Talk about theoretically, you know, sadism is deriving, like we were saying, pleasure from cruelty, hurting others is the goal mm. itself, whereas psychopathy is related to instrumental, so, you know, wanting money or reactive violence, like emotional provo- provocation. And so they talked about studies linking sadism to various things of enjoyment of watching others suffering, like, mm. say, watching humiliating videos of yeah. people, that kind of stuff. It's sort of interesting to think of it as like, well, we all probably have like an element of it. Mm. It just depends on where you, know, you sit. Because, you know, I was explaining to my children recently about the TV show Candid Camera, mm. you know, and that's like a, you know, one of the first reality shows, yeah. really. You're watching mm. and laughing at people. Yeah. Schadenfreude. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and that's kind of sadistic. Yeah. They sort of sum up by saying, well, they, they think that sadism is separate from the dark triad, but related, arguing this supports the notion of its inclusion to hmm. form a dark tetrad. Okay. So nice sort of quick summary. Summary, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so where are you taking us? Okay, relationships is where, where I'm going. Yep. So I found an article called Predicting Short and Long-Term Mating Orientations, The Role of Sex and the Dark Tetrad by Sukas and March in 2018 in the Journal of Sex Research. So there were quite a few articles about relationships and the dark tetrad. This one focuses on the preference for short or longer-term relationships and it had quite a... Initially, like, the background has quite a evolutionary psychology kind of slant to it, which I don't know about you, but there's not a huge amount of my work that goes off in that direction. What do you mean evolutionary psychology? Well, like, thinking about why we've evolved to have certain behavioural patterns mm. outside of sort of anxiety and stuff like that. It doesn't yeah. kind of – it's not something that I would seek out very often. Yeah. Yeah. But I also like, I always find evolutionary psychology quite interesting. Like, mm. It sort of hangs together. It's difficult to prove, I think, as a yeah. theory. But, but it's often quite logical. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, we, we, you know, we probably act this way and it probably, because it gives us this thing and that survival advantage. And exactly. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the research that's been done on preference for short or long-term relationships has come from this sort of background, particularly because of the different gender patterns in preferences. Short-term relationships, it's, you know, little commitment to a partner, casual sex as anything that doesn't involve sort of emotional investment, whereas long-term it's, you know, high-level investment, sexual exclusivity and then stronger emotional bonds. Mm -hmm. And so generally men are more interested in short-term relationships than women. Yep. And there's sort of been patterns found in terms of like personality traits and even physical traits in terms of how that influences preference. So, for example, men who are less dominant and less physically attractive tend to prefer longer term relationships. And it's Mm. kind of hypothesized as an evolutionary thing that you've got. If you're in that category, you've got a better shot of having children if you have a long term partner than trying to... Trying to play the play field, the field. You're less attractive or something. Exactly. Just just as on the gender difference. Mm. So when I worked as a, re- a research assistant for La Trobe University, mm. I worked on a project. One of the projects I worked on was a project called Private Lives. Mm-hmm. So they did a national survey of gay and lesbian or GLBTI. I'm not sure Q was in it at mm. the time. And one of the things that 
they looked at was they asked all this stuff about sexual behavior mm. because there was a sort of a sex, sexual health, sexuality research center. And so this is why you would ask about it. But they asked about your most recent partner. Yeah. Uh, how long had you known them before you had sex with them? Yeah. Right. And so I was mucking around with the data and mm. I split the data according to uh, sexuality. So essentially, gay male, bisexual. Yep. A lesbian, yeah, right. There might have been some more categories in that, but you get the idea. And for lesbians mm. and queer women, yep. it was like over a month. Yeah, was the the modal response right for mm-hmm. them, and the modal response for gay men was less than twenty four hours. Yeah, like it was, it was, it, <laughs> really was, it was so stark. Yeah, completely it, different pattern. It wasn't, and it wasn't one of those ones where it's like, oh, you know, it's you know, it's like five percent difference. It was, it was like. I can't remember the numbers, but yeah. it was drastically different. Fascinating. It was really, really interesting. Really interesting. So, and how that actually functions. Yeah, and is, how and yeah. how that plays out. I mean that's and that's yeah. to do with a whole lot of complicated things. Absolutely. So I'm, not, I'm not casting judgment on that. It's just no. more it is interesting how there is a gender gender difference and I mean in that case a gender and sexuality difference as well. Yeah. So. yeah. so yeah, they talk a lot about evolutionary function of women seeking long term relationships versus men seeking short-term in terms of women if we're focusing solely on childbearing of needing to have someone who's around for the duration, say, of pregnancy and while you're looking after your children, that sort of longer-term focus, whereas men there hasn't been that same kind of need, physical dependence, that sort of thing, evolution-wise. And so there's more of a tendency to seek short-term relationships and have more interest in multiple partners and multiple opportunities to have children yeah so makes sense in a very basic way that i found myself wanting to argue with but it makes sense but evolutionary psychology or like i did a fair amount of genetics and biology Mm. at university and it's all about what what, function does what increases your survival fitness exactly which and survival fitness is a particular concept so it does seem very crude but it is actually it's like yeah does this As mean, animals, does this mean that d- does this my mean genes that I have persist. offspring? Yeah, is kind of it. Yeah, exactly. Don't at me if you're a geneticist. <laughs> I've got that wrong, but yeah. So, in terms of personality traits that play into this, they've found that those who are higher in the dark triad traits tend to prefer short-term relationships. They've also found positive relationships between dark triad traits physical attractiveness and strategies used to avoid long-term relationships. So doing things like ignoring a short-term partner, avoiding emotional intimacy, even things like avoiding cuddles or stuff like that. Yeah, right. And so there's kind of a link between those three. And then dark triad traits have been linked to fast life history strategies, which is basically where sex is prioritised over other activities like developing skills, knowledge, capacity in other areas. Yeah. So if you've got more of a slow life history strategy, you're more interested in those things, that kind of stuff that takes time to develop. Yeah. So nothing to do with the slow food movement. No, exactly. <laughs> Fast food all the way. <laughs> Each one of the aspects of the dark triad have been related to different relationship patterns. So narcissism has been related to a more opportunistic style. So sort of whoever comes along. Machiavellianism has been related to negative sexual behaviours such as cheating and pretending to love someone. Psychopathy has been related to exploitative relationships, cheating, taking partners from others and relationship breakdown and distress. Because yeah. like, 
parasitic lifestyle is one of the things that the psychopath does. Exactly. Which is where they leech off somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And for the most part, all of these patterns have been more male-leaning rather than females yeah. exhibiting these behaviours. So basically they wanted to explore how sadism fits into this. So even though the other factors have been looked at, no one had looked into sadism before and how that might play out. Mm -hmm. And so the way they conceptualise sadism is a callous enjoyment of the physical, sexual or psychological suffering of others. Mm. And and that gets back to like S&M. Exactly, yeah. Sadistic Sadistic and masochistic tendencies. Yeah. (laughs) So... Basically, what they did was that they administered a whole bunch of questionnaires to a group of 464 people. So, about two-thirds were women, 71% were heterosexual, and 44% were single. They completed similar scales as what was in Mm -hmm. yours, I think, the short, dark, triad scale, the short, sadistic impulse scale, and then a measure of short and long-term mating orientation. And then they did a beautiful hierarchical regression, which had so many complicated aspects to it mm. that I'm just going to oh, boil it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was fantastic. Um, so gender predicted a significant amount of variance. So men had a stronger short-term orientation than women. Psychopathy and trait sadism predicted a preference for short-term relationships, but Machiavellianism and narcissism didn't, which mm-hmm. they were surprised about. They'd found psychopathy in previous research, but the sadism aspect is is new. They kind of conceptualised it that people high in sadism avoid emotional commitments due to a lack of remorse and a lack of care about the emotions mm. of others. It, just, it sounds like it wouldn't register. Yeah, and they sort of made the point that maybe they'd be aware that they lack what it takes to actually maintain a longer-term relationship. So it's kind of like, why bother? Yeah. Because, yeah, that's not for me. And, and also potentially like find it humorous that mm. they're, they're upset that the relationship's ending. Or exactly, like that, yeah, that you can just cut and run. Yeah, yeah. and like, oh, look at, her, look at her or look at him. Yeah. They're, they're getting upset. Isn't that funny? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So gender didn't predict whether someone preferred long-term relationships. It was only about the short-term end, which yeah. they were quite surprised about because other researchers found for both. They found that narcissism predicted long-term orientation. So this was different to past research. Past research was it was short-term and their kind of conceptualisation of it was that maybe the narcissist's need for external validation is better achieved through a long-term relationship Mm. where someone can constantly feed that and can sort of buffer you against against the world. They found that the sort of relationship between psychopathy and sort of a disinterest in long-term relationships was mediated through sadism completely. Basically what that means is that the aggression and violence that are common to both sadism and psychopathy is the trait that means that you're less interested in long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. So basically it's not so much that they're separate constructs in terms of what feeds into whether you'd prefer a long-term relationship or not. They sort of hang together. They're the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they found that sadism wasn't a strong individual predictor. It was only as a function of how it fit with psychopathy. Okay. So it was the pair together rather than anything separate. Yeah. So there you go. They were interested in how it functioned, but then also were suggesting that there be more research done about the nature of that mediating aspect of how psychopathy and sadism fits together. Because they didn't expect to find that and sort of thinking what's actually Mm. going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think they, they expected that sadism would contribute more than what it did. Variance-wise for stats nerds, it only added 1% or 2% on top of the dark triad. Oh, right. So it was quite small and yep. it was only with psychopathy. So it's kind of a little bit of questioning about how they hang together mm. and, and whether they do whether they're relevant in this context. Yeah, interesting. So the paper I am going to talk about is by Sherman Lee Mm -hmm. from Christopher Newport University in Virginia in the United States and it's published in Personality in Individual Differences in 2019. Our favourite. I got one too. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to try and get one from Personality in Individual Differences and from something else. And the one that I had before was the Journal of Individual Differences. (laughs) I think we need to do an entire Personality in Individual Differences podcast. We'll just read out the names. Yeah. (laughs) The article title is called The Dark Tetrad and Callous Reactions to Mourner Grief, Patterns of Annoyance, Boredom, Entitlement, Schadenfreude, and humour. The paper starts off talking about, you know, as you would say, as the death of a loved one is very painful, mm-hmm. right? And people typically experience empathy, concern, sorrow, compassion when they're the bereaved. Like people are nice to them, essentially. Mm. But mourners, and there's clearly like there's a literature on this that mourners also encounter people who do not have these sort of altruistic reactions to mm. them and their plight. And there's not much really research on who acts this way towards mourners, mm. right? I mean, I guess it'd be kind of complicated to really nut out. Yeah, right? it would be hard to look into that. Yeah. You're not really going to go say, so are you mean to people? Yeah. Uh, I feel like it's a questionnaire, right? Yep. So, you know. Hang around funerals and <laughs> notice who's being mean to No, it wouldn't work. No. Ethics would have a field day. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to go to, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, like people who are emotionally insensitive, who diminish a mourner's feelings, uh, can be controlling. You know, tell a mourner how to feel. Can be unsupportive and have they they can have a negative and harmful impact, mm-hmm. right, through their comments and through their actions. And so, some research on this sort of found that mourners spent nearly twice as much time discussing unhelpful people than they did the helpful ones. Right? Okay. Potentially, you, you could imagine that if this happens a lot or is particularly profound, mm. that could complicate someone's grief. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And depending on the relationship with the person as well, if it was someone close behaving in that way or... Yeah. yeah. Grief's one of these sort of sets of emotions that it needs, what we would say, needs to be processed, mm. right? There's like a series of things that you move through. Yeah. And recovery is not being happy. Mm. It's about moving through that thing, yeah. right? This paper wanted to examine callous reactions to mourners and mm-hmm. the personality traits, in particular the dark tetrad, that was associated with it because you know, it would feel that the emotional callousness that the four share, mm. cold-hearted and aggressive, you know, the, the kind of like it's a hop, step and a jump to callous reactions to a mourner. Absolutely. Essentially. So, yeah. so they looked at the dark tetrad traits, how they were associated with the feelings of annoyance, boredom, entitlement and schadenfreude. Mm-hmm. Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude. Mm, potato, I, potato. I didn't. I didn't do German at school. Mm, and humour during a recent conversation with a mourner who had spoken about his or her loss. Is Sherman, the author, expected that their reactions should exemplify emotional callousness as as this underlying feature, essentially? Mm-hmm. So, because we haven't talked about it, Schadenfreude 
is involved in deriving pleasure from another's misfortune, suffering, mm. though indirectly. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't cause it. Mm. Right. Is, is, is it's a, just observing it and observing then laughing it. at it. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. 265 American college students who had engaged in a past conversation with a bereaved individual about their loss. 82% white, 86% female, 75% Christian, mean age about 19 and a half years. Mm-hmm. So it was an online survey. People were reasonably close to mourners, so they were the mourners were acquaintances or close friends. Maybe okay. most most people had lost a close friend and were generally perceived as undergoing moderate levels of grief. Mm-hmm. Conversations were moderately serious, rated moderately serious in tone, and seventy one percent of the conversations happened in the last year, and seventy percent of the conversations lasted less than an hour. So it's a recall study. Yeah, they had a ten item scale of sadism mm-hmm. and a twelve item dark triad scale, which I think is the Dirty Dozen. Yeah, in Marseille. <laughs> <We> <laughs> I love about that, that scale name. <laughs> dirty Dozen. Kudos to the uh, scale authors. Um, <laughs> so they, the callous psychological reactions were measured with these questions. So it's probably just easy if I read them out. So they all started with that. During the conversation with the mourner, I felt annoyed with the mourner, felt bored with the mourner, felt like the mourner owed me for my time and effort, so that would be entitlement, mm. that I enjoyed some of the mourner's emotional pain, so that's shout and frown, mm. and I found some of the mourner's reactions funny, so that would be humour. Mm. So they gave some stats on that. So 14.7% were annoyed, 87 were bored, 57 had entitlement, 53 shout and and 6% humour. Hmm. So not huge amounts. No, which is probably a good thing. Probably a good thing. Definitely a good thing. So he ran a series of logistic regressions. Mm-hmm. So not hierarchical ones like you <laughs> but logistical. I always find logistical more complicated. Anyway, uh, yeah. looking at these responses and the contribution of each of the dark tetrab. So the annoyance, the odds of reacting with an annoyance increased by 86% with higher scores of Machiavellianism. Mm-hmm. Interesting, higher narcissism reduced reports of annoyance by 36 percent huh yeah it's really interesting so boredom none of the none of the four were Mm -hmm. predictive entitlement only sadism was predictive you were 7.7 times more likely to respond with entitlement if you were high in sadism so that's the yeah i felt like they owed me yeah sadism and psychopathy were predictive so 6.4 and five times more likely Mm. respectively and humor only sadism was predictive and so you 5.8 times more likely if you're high in sadism. Mm. So it kind of makes, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, really, really makes sense. So basically, dark tetrad traits were associated with callous responses, as it was expected. Sadism was most related. So they were more likely mm. to find the mourners' reactions funny, mm-hmm. uh, that their pain was enjoyable, and that they were owed for their time and effort. Yeah. That, that latter one was not predicted, but it could be that the conversation wasn't as cruel as they hoped, mm. and so they felt it was a bit of a waste of time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Psychopathy didn't predict boredom or humour, which they thought it might, mm. but did predict shout for it. And this has been shown before with college students reading about others' misfortune, mm. right? And high psychopathy associated with objective and subjective measures of enjoyment of that. Okay, right? yeah. And so it suggests that status get pleasure for the punishing quality of the events leading leading to this shout and humour, but mm. psychopathy people high in that the pleasure is less in the sensational nature of the event and so specific to schadenfreude and not humor yeah if that makes sense yeah the 
Machiavellianism was associated with annoyance and, and sort of theorized that this doesn't, it's probably because it doesn't yield any explicit benefits mm. to them. It's because they're, someone who's Machiavellian is reward driven, they're yeah. cynical. Yeah. Right? Kind of so this is just taking up time. Yeah. yeah. A good kind of pop culture is what's it, Frank Underwood mm. in House of Cards. Yeah. I think he embodies a lot of these, all of these traits yeah. at different times. Yeah. Yeah, particularly the, the using people as pawns yeah. to get what he wants. Absolutely. He's very Machiavellian with that sort of a, a good dose of hmm. the rest of it. Yes. <laughs> if that makes sense. Narcissists were less likely to be annoyed. It was unexpected. This paradoxical response being found before. Hmm. So narcissists can be insensitive to others but actually do exhibit emotional intelligence hmm. and empathetic tendencies and feelings. So, you know, possible that's feigned or a response bias. Could, yeah. I was thinking about it. I was like, well, it could be I have the least annoyance out of anyone. Yeah. Like I'm really I'm really good at helping people grave. Yeah. What, kind of what yeah. I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because, yeah, that sort of the questions are so obvious about what they're, what they're looking at that yeah. it might have been a little bit of that, yeah, desirability kind of bias. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But they're also like, but I'm really good at what yeah. I do. Yeah, I've totally got Like this. they would actually potentially... I actually believe, believe that. that. Yeah. So, so really the conclusion of this was that emotional sen- insensitivity that some mourners experience likely comes from dark personality traits. Hmm. Interesting. It's a nice, cute little study, I thought. It is. Yeah, very nice. So... Oh, the favourite title of the episode, I think. Yeah. So, my final study is called Trolls Just Want to Have Fun. <laughs> Which I just can't help. But that, that's about as humorous as we get here on Two Drinks Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is by Buckles and colleagues in Personality and Individual Differences in 2014. <laughs> All right. So, what do you know about trolls? I'm imagining it's not the one that Professor Quirrell let into Hogwarts. No. So I'm thinking uh, it's be online trolls, the people who make narky, snarky comments. Yeah. So essentially they're, they're people who are deceptive, destructive or disruptive in sort of social interactions online with no apparent instrumental purpose. So they don't seem to actually get anything in particular out of it other than potentially enjoyment. Yeah. Interviews with trolls, which... I just love the idea of, um, have identified themes of boredom, attention-seeking, revenge, pleasure, and the desire to cause damage to the community. Antisocial uses of technology seems to be related to heaviness of internet use. So the more you're online, the more likely you're going to exhibit these kind of behaviours. Mm-hmm. Men tend to be higher in both antisocial behaviour and amount of internet use. So, again, there seems to be a bit of a gender difference. They spoke about a bunch of different research involving the dark triad. I'm not going to go into too much detail about it because I feel like we've covered a lot of the the basics. Some of the sort of highlights were that narcissists and those with antisocial PD, which we've talked about a fair bit in previous episodes... Uh, use Facebook more often than others mm. and narcissists are online more often mm-hmm. than others, which kind of makes sense in terms of that fueling your own sense of identity and worth. Mm. Basically, these authors decided that they would develop two studies to look at 
how sadism fit into trolling and how whether the all four aspects of the dark tetrad were related to trolling behavior or just sadism. I sort of spoke about how it makes sense that sadism would be involved in something that's essentially taking enjoyment out of irritating others, Mm. but about how all of it hangs together. They were also interested in big five personality traits as well. So for the first study, they had 418 participants, 42% were female and it was a mean age of 29. Also not university students. No. So this was online using Amazon Mechanical Turk. And so they administered a bunch of different scales of sadism, the dark triad, and then they also asked questions about internet behaviour that included things like how many hours do you spend a day commenting on posts, videos, etc. Mm. Then they also asked what was your favourite activity in the commenting realm, yep. of which trolling was one of them. So what they found was that the mean number of commenting hours was 1.07 per day. And commenting time was associated with lower conscientiousness and higher scores on all the dark triad scores except narcissism. Mm -hmm. Commenting time was negatively associated with age. So the younger you were, the more time you spent commenting. And men reported a greater number of hours posting comments than women. The favourite activity... But were the women's comments pithier? (laughs) We don't know. <laughs> Self-reported. Self-reported. Yeah, so there's a bias there. Um, the favourite activity when commenting was for 5.6% of the respondents, it was trolling yeah. was their, was their favourite. The dark tetrad scores were highest among those who selected trolling as their most enjoyable activity and it was significant for every aspect of the dark triad. Yeah, they all predicted all it. Yeah. And those who chose trolling as a favourite activity were higher on extroversion and lower on agreeableness. So it fits with some of the stuff that's come up before about those two facets. Yeah. So for the second study, what they wanted to do was kind of break it down a little bit more and add in how much time people spend online altogether. So not just commenting, but Mm -hmm. doing other stuff as well. And then they also wanted to measure each type of online kind of commenting behaviour measured separately rather than asking the people to pick just one that was their favourite. And then the final thing they added was a scale, a five-item scale that measured trolling behaviour. And I thought I might read that out because it might might be helpful in understanding the kind of things mm. they were looking at. So they had to rate on a five-point scale their agreement with these items. Uh, I have sent people to shock websites for the lulls. I like to troll people in forums or comment sections of websites. I enjoy griefing other players in multiplayer games. And the more beautiful and purer thing is, the more satisfying it is to corrupt. (laughs) That's nasty. Yeah, yeah. So whacked all of this in. They had two pools of samples, which I kind of lost track of at different points which pool they were drawing from, which... Is interesting in that so they had 188 psychology students from Canada, uh, 55% female, mean age just over 21, and they completed everything but then they also completed the big five factor assessment and then they had 609 people from Mechanical Turk again mm-hmm. online, so 43% female, mean age 35, so they were older, but they didn't complete the big five element Mm -hmm. and i don't know if it was just where my head was at but somewhere along the way 
everything merged into one. <laughs> so I'm just going to talk about the results as a general clump because <laughs> that's where my brain's at tonight. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the way it goes. Sometimes. Yeah. So the dark tetrad scores were positively associated with commenting frequency as for the first study. Commenting frequency was also correlated with the enjoyment of trolling, even when controlling for overall internet use. Sadism, psychopathy and Machiavellianism were all related to self-reported trolling enjoyment. So not just that it was their favourite, but how much they enjoyed it. Mm. And then the scores on that scale that I just read out were positively related to enjoyment how much you enjoyed it, all aspects of the dark tetrad. Commenting frequency, uh, being younger, having lower conscientiousness, lower agreeableness, and men were more likely to score higher on that scale than women. So they found that sadism and Machiavellianism were unique predictors of trolling enjoyment. So uh, those two, two groups really got into trolling, whereas narcissism was negatively associated. And they also found that sadism predicted stronger scores on the trolling scale, even when controlling for the rest of the tetrad. It seemed to have an effect above and beyond. Yeah, right. So why do they think with the narcissism? Not quite sure. Yeah. Because it's interesting because the narcissism was related to it being a favourite activity but not the amount of enjoyment. And I wonder whether it's about the, you know, purpose of it. It's like I look good but I don't really get I don't really get into it. I don't really get into it. Whereas the people high on sadism and Machiavellianism. Because I could imagine you're like, oh, I said this funny thing to somebody. Yeah. Did I tell you about how I had this yeah. funny quip? Rather than it Rather being than inherently in, Yeah, like, sort of enjoyable. like driving it, driving the behaviour or something. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. Yeah, but the online behaviour is more the thing rather than the trolling itself. Yeah, it's like, yeah the, the, the act itself versus, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of looked at mediating effects and their conclusion was that sadism leads to trolling because the behaviours are pleasurable. Yeah. So it's it's inherently pleasurable for this group and so that's that's why they do it. That's why it's, why it's higher. And they spoke about how essentially both sadists and trolls feel sadistically at the distress of others. So, mm. of course, they're going to hang together. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that fits a little bit with what we talked about on the Inside Out pod about mm. sort of the internet and how it's sort of become a repository of, you know, anger and hate and, and mm. nasty comments, you know, particularly about pop culture. Yeah, and, and you can get away with a lot more online yeah. than you can face-to-face. Yeah, you can I mean, push things a lot further Yeah, like because what, what I was thinking about, I was thinking about the same lines of that trolling for the most part is consequence-free. Mm. And so it'd be sort of interesting if you could increase the cost. Mm, whether uh, it would. It, what would happen mm. and what, what would happen to the behaviour. Yeah. And then whether a dark tetrad influence would be more profound or not. Yeah. Interesting to see. And it'd be interesting to know whether, I don't know if there's any research about whether anyone has looked at sort of real world behaviour and Online. trolling. Yeah. In the same people about whether... I wonder whether, you know, whether the internet provides an avenue, like an outlet mm. for that behaviour or whether the behaviour is across, across the board. It's yeah. in at work or, or at school. Or, or, whether you, or whether you start doing it online and then you become a bit more... Uh, Numb to it. You know, you, they start to dabble it in the real world yeah. or something like that. Yeah. It'd be quite fascinating. To I certainly, a lot of the teenage boys I have worked with who have been big gamers would say that they're an entirely different person and probably fit more into this online mm. than what they are face-to-face yeah. and sort of things that their friends have said and stuff 
really highlights that they're quite kind and interested in other people face to face. And then and I wonder whether that is just a sample effect or how that kind of plays out. Yeah, I yeah, because there were there was a lot of stuff around computer gaming mm. that was not so much about trolling per se. It was about like uh, dark, dark tetrade and yeah. you know violence in computer games and, and aggression like and stuff like because that. Because it's quite interesting. Played Grand Theft Auto on the PlayStation, mm. and you know w- how you act in a consequence-free world. Yeah. Uh, is very different to how you act yeah. in the real world. And in a world that's kind of set up on the premise that to do well in it, you act in a way that's... Yeah, yeah. Whereas, yeah. whereas, and I think what's fascinating about things like psychopathy, Machiavellianism, you know, sadism, narcissism, is that people who are high on those traits who, and who have personality disorders, mm. they will act that way in a world where there's consequence. Yeah. Or yeah. where there's, you know, potential for consequence, like yeah. real. So perhaps it's about severity that people who are on the lower end of the scale that, direct you know, it, yeah. only use it in a consequence free. Yeah. And I think, you know, and every, I think everyone's got an element of mm. darkness to them yeah. or can be pushed into darkness. Mm. Uh, it's, but yeah, then, then there's this sort of different class of people who will have high traits and really, really evil things going yeah. on for them. Yep. It's a light note to finish on. <laughs> <laughs> and now for a break. <laughs> we will see you soon. <laughs> Two tricks, bye. But as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call wars instead of simple explanations. I hate that. Well, we just recorded the break bit and... Uh, it was fabulous. You really <laughs> missed out. And uh, we found out that the um, program wasn't recording. Do you know what happened? What's that? We were too sort of self-satisfied that it went well. And that we only had to do it once. No, it was because we were focused on the fact we were eating... Cupcakes. Cupcakes. Patty pans. Patty pans. I'll do a synopsis of of Amy's comments in the break, which was that jam goes on the bottom and then you put cream and then there's more stuff. Family arguments. Yeah. If you don't do that... This is the break (laughs) of Tushik's pod where we very quickly say thank you for listening. Yep. If you can rate and review us... That is great. On um, you can do that through your podcast app, uh, Apple. Yes, yeah, very app. Apple biased. Yeah, because someone emailed us recently said, "Look, mm. we'd like to rate the thing, but I listen on a different podcast app." And I was mm. like, "I don't even know what that podcast app is." Mm. So yeah, I felt technological. Uh, so you can rate and review us. You can also do it through iTunes, I think. Yeah. Or check out our website, twoshrinkspod.com, where Amy tells me that she's updated it recently. Yeah. What did you update? exciting. I updated the list where you can find things by topic so you don't have to go through everything. You can go, I want to know about this thing and hunt it down in a aesthetically pleasing list that's all formatted exactly right yep. because I have a real problem with lists that have different fonts. And so... <laughs> I did not spend too much time on that. It was um, perfectly a normal amount of time spent. Amy and I are a little pedantic, as will be evidenced by my things we came across articles shortly. And we're back (laughs) from the break. Are we though? Are we? I don't know. Uh, I'm not. So this is things we came across. This is a segment we do. 
end of every episode where we like to talk about articles that we've come across. You know, you're doing a lit search, you see something that looks far more interesting mm. than what you're doing, or you just kind of like, I wonder, let's just put these two words into the search engine and see what comes out. Hmm. It's like, oh, someone got paid to do that. Yeah, it's quite exciting. So, um, shall I go first? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hang on, what do you have? I'm not going to tell you. What's the tone of what you have? Uh, Pedantic. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) So, I'll I'll take you on a little journey that I went on this afternoon. Okay. For... Uh, Strap I was, yourselves in, listeners. <laughs> it's, 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 it's probably not worth the payoff. I, ha- I had an idea which was food cravings, right? Because mm-hmm. I was having a conversation yesterday with a patient and I kept using burger and fries as a food that she could go and treat herself with, right? But, but can I just interject and yep. say that whenever someone wants to treat themselves with something, you always suggest burger and fries. Well, see, that, that's the point. But, like, the thing was that, like, it became a, a bit of a joke yep. in the session. And and I was like, I looked at my watch, I'm like, yeah, it's like lunchtime. <laughs> this is, there's this no, and, like, we, we, her and I had a bit of a laugh about it. So I was like, oh, well, food cravings. I'll, mm. I'll type in a food cravings questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And like it just wasn't getting any hits. And I'm like, but I looked at this yesterday and it was getting hits. And I realized that's spelled questionnaire incorrectly. <laughs> so I then did a search on spell checkers. <laughs> so okay, yeah. we've got, I, I came across two interesting papers. The, one of them is was titled, but the spells checker always corrects which words I misspelled with the word which as W I. T-C-H <laughs> and I spelled with as in the organ I. So, but <clears throat> the paper I'm actually going to talk about is didn't you run the spell checker effects of type of spelling error and use of spell checker on perceptions of the author mm-hmm. by Lauren Figueredo and Connie Van Hagen, the University of Alberta. And this is in 2005 in reading psychology. Do you, uh, you judge people for the spelling? Is that a trick question? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. And then I feel guilty and then I feel (laughs) self-righteous. See, because I'm not sure that I've noticed that you've outwardly critiqued my spelling ever. Internally. But but the way that I know that you have is because every now and then I'll get, you'll text me and then there'll be like a follow-up text where you've like proofread your text message afterwards and then you've corrected (laughs) your spelling. Yeah, because it really irritates me if I like click send and then I see it and go, it's the wrong. See, my my favourite one of those is when someone texts you and then... Like 10 minutes later, <laughs> you get the thing. Yep. Like, so I, like I'm a classic, like I'll, I'll bang a text message out yep. and then realize, I've, you know, it's, it's your instead of you are, yep. right? Uh, you know, that, but the, it's, it's the, like the, oh, I've just reread this yep. and I need to correct that. And there's no way I can't not correct it. Whereas I feel like there's an element of mine that's quite pragmatic about other people. So for myself, I'll correct yeah, but for other people, if I know what they mean, yeah, then I'll let it go. It might be a moment of going, "That's wrong," and but internally, but it's rare that I'll say to someone, "If it's a family member, I'll correct them the <laughs> wrong way." Yeah. So, so <laughs> this paper is really it, it's asking the question: How does the use of a spell checker affect perceptions about an author mm-hmm. and the written product? What, oh, now hang on. Yes. Pause. 
Are we talking author in terms of like published material? Uh, because if it's public material, if it's like website of an organisation, if it's a journal article, if it's a book, my judgment is far higher than if it's text, email, quick kind of jotted mm-hmm, down mm-hmm. Yep. thing. It's scathing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's yeah. exactly right. So, well, they were talking about like, what skills or personal attributes could attract criticism when misspellings mm-hmm. are found in word process text? And, and I know you don't watch Game of Thrones, that but is there correct. is a great bit where in one of the later seasons where Stannis Baratheon corrects someone's English. Right. <laughs> like, but he's like listening to these uneducated people speak and he corrects it. <laughs> like like, like in, in an involuntary kind yeah. of way, right? <laughs> it's like, it's like yeah. yes, buddy, yes. I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> so people, the authors talk about use written communications ways of making inferences regarding an author's intelligence and mm-hmm. skills, right? As people, we take relevant information into account when forming an attitude and these attitudes and perceptions formed regarding someone's writing ability may have implications, say, for example, like in education, like, you know, what grades they get, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, right? So proper spelling affects the quality of written products and spelling errors distract readers, mm-hmm. affect their judgments about their writing quality, their writing ability, that kind of stuff. You know, they've found that kids kids who read stories with misspellings report more negative attitudes towards the author and the story content than, mm-hmm. than people who read a non-spelling error story. And so this was in second, fourth and sixth grade children. Okay. Right. Yep. So like young, yeah. right? That's really young. Yeah. They're already picking out that there's mistakes and that that's bad. And that negative attitude increases as someone gets older. Mm. And then if you're a good speller, you have a negative, more negative attitude towards the author and essay. And that's in second grade children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was really, really great. Yeah. So. Little Amy agrees with that. <laughs> <laughs> Given I recently found my stories from that age, I can, I can attest to this. Were they precise or not? They were. They were emotionally detailed. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yeah, anyway. So in another study, researchers, they got a short essay and they had control essay with no errors or an essay with phonological errors. So say description would be spelled D-I-S-cription mm. or instead of D-E-S-cription or an essay with typographical errors. So mm. say, for example, the Sean's being spelled T-O-I-N mm. rather mm. than T-I-O-N. Participants would be read one of the essays and ask to rate the author on writing logical and intellectual ability. Mm-hmm. They found that the ratings of writing ability were lowest in the phonological condition followed by the typographical condition and mm-hmm. highest in the control condition. So basically that the type of error seems to be Matter. important, yeah. right? These, this, this paper talks about homophone errors versus non-homophone errors. So a homophone is there versus there, mm. T-H-E-I-R versus T-H-E-R-E. Mm. So a spell checker won't pick that up. No. Right? It's quite easy to actually make that error mm. versus, say, a non-homophone error. So that would be a, like an unconventional spelling. Okay. So f- for there... For T-H-E-R-E, you could actually get T-H-E-R. It's an unconventional spelling and it would actually be correct, but it would be glaringly obvious as a reader that that's not what you would use. Mm. It was like when Donald Trump, when he was in the election campaign, kept using the word bigly. Yeah. But actually bigly is actually an English word. Mm. It's just not in in common usage, right? So 
I think <clears throat> I think in his case, he's probably actually just making a mistake. Yeah. It's just by luck that mm. it's actually an English actually word. So they were kind of looking at, they hypothesized that Rhea's judgments about skills related to spelling and computers would suffer in error conditions compared to no error condition, which kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. But that type of errors in particular would be important for these judgments. So if you read an essay that's got errors that are typically flagged by a spell checker, so non-homophobe, mm-hmm. they may wonder why an author didn't correct it, yep. essentially. It, it feels be, more careless. Yeah, that yep. kind of thing. So... 97 males, 173 females, first year undergraduates, 19 years old. And they were given a spelling test as well. Mm-hmm. So they had two essays with 15 misspellings, mm-hmm. like vile and reeks. So vile spelled V-Y-L-E and reeks spelled R-E-A-K-S. Mm-hmm. So they're phonologically acceptable, orthographically legal spellings, but they're not the conventional spellings yeah. like vile, V-I-A-L or... R-E-E-K-S for weeks. And then there was like three conditions. They didn't mention whether there was a spell checker. They said that the author used a spell checker or that they said that the author didn't use a spell Mm -hmm. checker. And they also had a perception of the essay and the writer. And then they also got them to do spelling verification. So the researcher instructed the participants to go through the essay carefully again, circle the spelling errors. Which is quite interesting because yeah. the, there was all these false positives <laughs> 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 of, of people circling words that weren't, that were weren't, correct. Uh, weren't correct. So basically they found that in the no error condition, participants rated author skills more positively than participants in the non-homophone error conditions. Mm-hmm. It's not really that surprising. The ratings of the written product, so no error was the highest, homophone errors was the middle and non-homophone errors. Okay. So which is so which that's is the, what they thought. Yeah, so like the there versus there versus the Unusual spelling of there. Yeah. That, that was how it was rated. Yeah. So. Makes sense. Yeah. I think that's how I would be. Yeah. Although I've got to say like when people use the wrong. Your. Like the your. Yeah. That irks me. Although I found something of mine recently where it like it was like really prominent. and I, Yeah. And you I, have an incorrect your. And I. <laughs> thanks for not telling me about that. I corrected that today. Did you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought that you'd think my that Facebook. I was being pedantic. No, you should tell me. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, and so they found that there was these correlations between non-homophone errors and participants' beliefs that spelling errors are the fault of the writer mm. and perceptions of proofreading ability, things like that. Yeah. You know, readers differentiate between errors contained in text and they're more critical of, of non-homophone misspellings than they are of homophone errors. So There you go. They talk about it longer. That's, that's, that's it. And, that's and, a gist. But it kind of fits. And, yeah, you know, pedantic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where are you taking it? <laughs> Um, so often my things we came across, I haven't just stumbled across them. I've had a thought and gone looking. Mm-hmm. This time it just appeared in oh. my lap. Oh. oh, I know. It's rare. Uh, so I subscribe to the BPS Research Digest, which is the British Psychological Society's Research Digest. No! <laughs> we know this. <laughs> Finally confirmed. <laughs> um, and they send, <laughs> you just look so pleased. <laughs> you look so pleased. <laughs> like finally the world will understand. <laughs> so they send, you're really not okay, are you? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. They send out sort of 
little articles that summarize various bits and pieces of research. Sometimes they're weird, sometimes they're quite mainstream. I'll usually kind of have a scroll through and and click on what takes my fancy. But this one was the top one this time. And I think the reason why I clicked on it was that it had the word creatures in the title. Suck me right in. But basically the title is Psychologists Have Identified the Creatures We Find Most Scary and Revolting. Mm -hmm. And it's summarising research that's done by Pollack and colleagues in the Czech Republic. And then this article was written day before yesterday by Christian Jarrett. So what they did was that they wanted to know which animals out of the ones that we most commonly have phobias to, which ones are the most disgusting and which ones are the most sort of fear-provoking for a general sample that doesn't have phobias of these animals. Yeah. So they had 24 animals that are most commonly despised or feared and then they added in a red panda as a control, which apparently was low on, you know, discuss, thought is to be low red on. Panda? Red panda? Is it like, oh, is it like brownie colour? It's, it's this dude next to the cat. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so they asked people to look at images. So what are the 25? Well, okay. So the 25, they go into five groupings. There's fear-relevant non-slimy animals. So this is your cockroach, your maggot, your ants, wasps, that kind of area. Mouse-like animals, mouse, rat, bat, that sort of thing. Snakes and lizards, parasites, so this louse, tapeworm, roundworm sort of thing. So then there's like farm or pet mammals, so horse, cat, stuff like that. And then there's a few other random ones that don't seem to fit into any of the categories that they said that they were, like pigeon, rooster, snail, things like that. But so what they did was they showed images of each one of these animals and asked people to rate them on a scale about how much they feared them and how much they were disgusted by them. And then they plotted it and worked out which things elicited the highest fear and disgust. So they found that spiders elicited the highest fear, followed by venomous snakes, Mm -hmm. and then followed by sort of parasites that could infect us. Mm-hmm. In terms of disgust, the parasites were right up there as well. Mm. They scored highest on both, uh, followed by sort of roaches, spiders, mm. that sort of thing. All the way at the other end, cats were the least feared and disgusted, which of course is why why we're here. <laughs> You're rolling your eyes uh, at me. Dogs weren't any more we disgusted, to get but they were the whole pod without mentioning cats. <laughs> they were more feared than cats. Yep. Dogs, which makes sense. Yeah, well, it yeah makes sense. exactly. Yeah, pigeons were more disgusted than cats and dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Disgusting. Mm. Or were they disgusted of us? <laughs> <laughs> no, disgusting. Yeah. So basically the things with the strongest fear and the strongest disgust, they thought that perhaps this has an evolutionary function, that we're sort of primed to find things that are parasites or whatever Mm. as disgusting and fearful so we avoid them, so that we avoid getting sick and that perhaps the sort of spider, viper, fear kind of category functions in a similar way, that it's kind of uh, avoidance. Yeah. We need to avoid it because they're they're frightening. Uh, What they found, which they didn't expect, was that people with traumatic past experiences with animals uh, reported lower fear ratings And then when they kind of nutted that out, figured that perhaps people who are higher in 
fear, avoid those animals more so they haven't had any kind of contact with them that could have caused a bite or anything like that. So that perhaps that was why. Sort of makes sense, potentially. Mm. You never know what's going on with people. There's a psychologist. (laughs) And women rated animals as more fear-inducing and disgusting than men, especially for the repulsive human parasites and the non-slimy invertebrates. Yeah, so there you go. Um, and they end up with a very pretty pretty graph, if you would like to. Yeah, so that's it. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next time. Yep, and don't forget to rate, review the show if you like it, all that jazz. And we'll see you around on Twitter. See ya. Drink gin. <laughs> just record ourselves drinking gin and having just, a conversation. Just, just so we already had maybe two drinks already. Yep, and then it just progresses, <laughs> and so by the end we're going. You know, those little dudes in your head with the legs that reach to the other ones, and they any, send all the electricity. Any time you say the word conditioning, you have to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Piaget. <sighs>